0: Greetings, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Today, my guest is Josh Rodriguez. Josh is a private wealth advisor at Goldman Sachs, a major in the Army Reserve with extensive active duty experience directing combat operations overseas, and a foster MBA graduate. Welcome, Josh. Thanks,
1: Frank. It's uh, it's great to be here.
0: Josh, given your military experience, I want to start with a general question about leading in a time of crisis. And then I want to follow up with some questions about the re- recent withdrawal of US troops from Afghanistan and the role that you played in getting your interpreter out of the country in the midst of the chaos at that time. When in a crisis situation, what are the two or three fundamental principles you utilize when making decisions?
1: There's uh, there's actually, uh... Two, two or three things that, that I would talk to my soldiers about quite often. If we're to bucket them into, in just into three things, the first is every, everyone is scared uh, in times of crisis or, or during a firefight when bullets are flying. You know, it's, it's unrealistic to believe that even the most experienced combat vets are going to be numb to what's happening um, all around them. Um, something I used to tell them was the difference, the biggest difference rather, between fight or flight is what direction you run. Um, so that's, that's the first one. Uh, the, the second, uh, is, is if everything is going according to plan, uh, I'm probably seconds away from being ambushed. And, uh, that one was learned through experience. Uh, and then, and then the third one would be, uh, also learned through experience. Um, am I prepared to live with the consequences of my actions or inaction? First one went in went into the role, uh, kind of understanding about you know this is going to happen and it's going to be scary. But the the second two were definitely just experiential.
0: Yeah, I think those are they're great fundamental principles. One is it just recognizes that when you're in a crisis situation, uh, most people, even those you may perceive to be extremely brave, are are probably a little anxious and scared. They should be expecting a surprise and they should be living and making decisions true to their values in case things don't go well they can say I did the best and I adhered to my values in that situation. So wonderful to hear that. Can you give us an example from your military experience where you implemented those principles and how, how did things turn out?
1: Yeah. Um, I, I mean, like, like I had mentioned, for, first one was, was, um, was kind of something I went in with. The second two were more of the hands-on type. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, that, that third one is, is deeper than someone taking on a leadership role um, and, and you need to sit with it before assuming real responsibility, you know, living with the consequences of your actions. Um, y- you owe it to the people that you, you serve to be prepared to answer that question. And if your decisions impact others, uh, they should be aware that you have that kind of power. Um, for my part, all three played out um, on, on May 3rd, 2009 specifically Uh, In that one situation, I had eight soldiers and a handful of Afghan army soldiers with me on a mountaintop um, in Kunar province, which is far northeast, northeastern area of Afghanistan. Um, We had a force of 80 to 100 enemy fighters committed, that committed themselves to overrunning our position on this mountaintop. Um, They had, they had done so successfully uh, to my friends two days prior. And, and we're now trying their luck uh, with us. Um, acknowledging number one, allows you to get past the fact that the situation is gonna be scary.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, uh, watching someone lay concertina wire uh, or themselves across that, so that just so that somebody behind them can get inside is, is going to be scary. And so uh, once you get past that, you know, move on. And uh, otherwise we don't, we don't come out of this. Uh, number two, uh, you know, that kicked in Uh, when we had defeated the initial wave of enemy trying to infiltrate our our perimeter and it felt like maybe we were winning the battle right um everything's going according to plan. um and uh i remember jumping on the radio uh with the close air support these are some of the fast fast movers uh the jets f-16s things like that that were in the air and um they were telling me that there was a large group of fighters massing around 300, 350 meters away to rush you know, our one fortified position. And that's when number three kicked in uh, when he asked me to make a call on dropping like, munitions to, to save us. And this is, this is within a range that the books don't let you do. If you were to go and ask this question in the manuals, they would say, absolutely not. You're too close to this 2,000 pound bomb impact um that's not that's not authorized but when it's you on the ground and you have this decision in front of you and you're literally giving them your initials because it will go in the logs depending on the outcome Mm -hmm. um you need to be prepared to live with the consequences either way Uh, thankfully in that situation it was the right call and um you know all of our all of our soldiers walked away as well as the afghans that we were looking to protect
0: that, that's great to hear. Can you give us a sense for the timing? So what you just described, did that take place in a short period of time, over a day?
1: Yeah, that was, um, the height of that battle itself was about 45 minutes long. Wow. So, um, you know, we, we had just, we we're brand new to this observation post, um, spent about 12 hours just trying to build some standoff and because there was like a lot of vegetation um, and building some sort of protection for ourselves. It was really just a sandbag wall about three feet high and then one strand of concertina wire eight meters from that wall. Um, so the closest enemy had gotten about 24 feet from our nearest soldier on multiple occasions from multiple directions. Um, and you know, the only reason we found out because it was the dead of night was a trip flare went off. Mm. We're like, that's probably not a goat. uh especially you know half a second later when it seemed like there were bullets everywhere coming inside we had to press ourselves against the sandbag wall just to not be in the middle of this observation post so 45 minutes of that and uh with ebbs and flows throughout the process um culminating probably around the 30 minute mark uh, as far as or rather um you know hitting the uh the, the top of that apex there before it started calming down again.
0: So forty-five minutes of a very intense time period in the dark. Had you thought in advance about how you might approach a situation like that? Doesn't seem like a time where you should be thinking through this. You better be reacting at that point. Can That's you right. Comment on that.
1: Yeah. So in that in that particular situation, we came into the environment understanding that this was not a safe situation. Um, there was very little protect there's really no protection, uh, a single strand of concertina wire at the time I've, actually we by the end of the night we had added three more. Um, mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot of trip flares we added more trip flares. Um, we added more sandbags we we talked about what would be the escape and about eva- an escape and evasion plan. At what point do we say, this is not worth keeping to save the lives of the people that are on this observation post because two days prior. It didn't work out and and you know we could see that about two kilometers away from one mountaintop to the next and so um you know we we had these things in place these these critical decision points that were identified ahead of time um prepared for the worst case scenario and the worst case scenario ended up playing out uh we did not anticipate that it actually would but you know we planned for it and as, that, as the enemy fighters were massing on that fortified position, that was the signal. If that position looked like it was going to not make it, the whole observation post crumbles. And so at that point, we were going to coordinate with the folks on the ground to just shooting over our heads as we expelled down the mountain. Wow! Thankfully, we didn't have to go that far, but yeah. we went, we got close. <laughs>
0: It sounds like a very intense experience. Uh, have you found the three principles that you talked about just as applicable to your corporate career? Um,
1: absolutely. I think that uh, the consequences of your decisions are are going to be meaningful at a certain point. Um, and it's all relative, right? You know, I, I, I talk about that situation in a couple of others with my colleagues. And sometimes the response is, oh, well, there's nothing here that's going to compare to that? Well, it's all relative, right? Because uh, somebody, somebody has real stress uh, no matter what environment they're in. And so in Afghanistan, that, the, the threshold has just been shifted far to the right. Um, but the, that band that, that you're operating in and you're, you're used to, uh, the lower end and the higher end, I mean, that feels the same. And so when, if you're just moving the band over here or, or wherever it is in the corporate world and you're on that upper end of that band, you're still gonna feel stressed. So I think these principles are helpful. Um, everybody, when you come into a, a situation that is uh, the equivalent of, of kinetic in the corporate world, lots of decisions, lots of you know, big things happening, um, trying to work towards an initial public offering um, I mean, there's gonna be a lot of stress. And so if you just accept that going into the process, then I think um, you know, you'll have you'll have a level head about yourself to um, so to account for number two, if everything is going according to plan, what am I missing here? <laughs> there's gotta be something. And so do I have the right elements in place to help me make um calculated and advised decisions. And then number three, am I prepared to live with these consequences in in the highest of stakes?
0: Either way. Yeah. What you're describing, Josh, reminds me of my athletic days where you really grow through stress, right? It's through those stressful situations and stressing your body physically that you grow and become better tomorrow than you are today. And that's what I'm taking from what you're describing. I'd like to now transition to the recent withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan and how you got involved in helping your interpreter, Iqbal, uh, get out of the country. Can you start by telling us about the important role interpreters played during your deployment to Afghanistan?
1: Um, absolutely. And, and you know, before I even answer that question, I just want to say thank you for asking it, uh, because, because it's really important. It's... Uh, it's something that I, I hope a lot of people focus on um, so, that, so that hopefully we can get these folks out uh, or or, the, or do the right thing here uh, the, the importance of these folks I mean if you think about it um, let's let's look at Iqbal's personal situation um, you know I met him in 2008 I was 23 years old yep he was uh, unknown age and I asked him you know how, how old are you uh, cause you're pretty young and uh, I feel like I'm pretty young. And he was like, I, you know, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? There's somebody standing right there with a piece of paper. And then they give me the piece of paper and this is my birthday. And yes, that's actually what, I, <laughs> that's what, <laughs> what we do. And he was like, well, that didn't, that didn't happen for us. Uh, and I said, I, I mean, you look like you're around 19. And he said, I think I'm closer to 16. And I said, well, you know, I think we need to keep you on the fob to work here. So let's just go with 19. And we made up a date right there. You know, we we made up his birthday. Um, And, and so, you know, I I call out that story because his entire adult life and some of his childhood was spent helping us American soldiers. um, And, and not even, not even, you know, the, the country of Afghanistan. It was in hopes of helping the country of, of Afghanistan, but he was, he was serving the US Army in combat yeah. for um, you know this, this entire time, 13, 14 years.
0: Well, thankfully you were able to help get him out of Afghanistan. Will you walk us through how things unfolded and the critical decision points in that process?
1: Yes, um, so someday Iqbal will have his movie um, and we'll all go watch it together. I told him I just want a good seat at the premiere. <laughs> but um, Iqbal, uh, he, he served all the commanders that were in that area of Afghanistan until there were no more commanders to serve. Um, at which point the Taliban raided his, his home and injured eight family members. He was uh, subsequently banished from his village um, and became homeless. He created a company to help uh, U.S. Uh, contracts on different Ford operating bases, FOBs, and uh, and then when he ran out of those, because the you know we we continue to pull out, he said, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know help. I still want to be helpful. I can't do it with Americans apparently like right now. So, I'm gonna go and join uh, NDS, the NDS group. NDS is basically um, they have five different." groups. They're all commando units. Uh, they are a paramilitary force. He went from the lowest person on the totem pole in NDSO 3 which is in charge of Afghani- or Kandahar area, uh, to being the commander of forces for NDS-03. This was my interpreter at 16 <laughs> or 19 years old is now, uh, you know, the head of all commando units for Southern Afghanistan. Um, so he gave me a call and uh, told me, you know, this is, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm doing. Uh, I'm asking him, where, he, where is he in the special immigrant visa process? He's telling me that um, he was initially denied. And I, and I said, well, well, what happened? And so he, he gave me his packet. This is, we're looking at April, May timeframe now of this year. And I see this thing that says unfaithful disloyal service. And I'm like, this can't, well, what's going on? Tell me, tell me what the context is. Uh, I drilled down into, you know, the weeds with every commander he had worked with. And uh, the person, the time, the time period where this took place, it was literally a clerical issue that they thought had been fixed. It was that, that designation had been given to him by a contractor that never met him, not even in the country at the time. Uh, and so we were racing to try to fix this. Everybody's writing you know, their own memorandums for record. Meanwhile, Iqbal is fighting in Kandahar um, and, and he's um, becoming one of the only ones fighting at this point. Um, and so then the country begins to fall as we come into uh, July timeframe. And uh, it's, it's getting to the point where this is not actually going to help you anymore. The paperwork's not going to work. It, it's, it's not, it's not the way it should be, but, um, uh, there's just no time to, to clean this thing up. And so we just, we were trying to just keep him safe the best we could, the commanders, uh, and myself, uh, Kandahar falls. He gives me a call on his phone and says, the provincial governor told me to give everything to the Taliban. And, uh, and he said, I'm not doing it. It was like, uh, the Americans believe And trusted me and this unit to continue fighting. Um, So he's, he, that night, he destroyed all the weapons and munitions and equipment that he had uh, that he couldn't take with him uh, on two different bases and and retrograded to the Kandar airfield um, and protected the airstrip in hopes of getting out. Hmm. Um, So he's, he's now protecting the airfields He's slowly getting surrounded by the Taliban and uh, he's looking for a way out. Um, And he also has two American reporters with him that that we found out about later. He was trying to protect them. (laughs) Um, And so um, this is the situation. They negotiate a temporary ceasefire and they say, hey, look, I mean, these folks aren't going to quit on either end so just get them out get them out of your hair Taliban pretty much so they got six C-130s you know they 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 just loaded them up
0: Hmm.
1: he lands in Kabul realizes that there's still about 300 people still in Kandahar including the two American journalists who did not get on the plane so he forces the pilot to go back and gets on the plane with him and it's just him and the pilot with one C-130. They go back to Kandahar. He puts the two American journalists on the plane, fills it up with about 150 p- folks or so, however many he can get and stays behind in Kandahar. At this point, his soldiers and commandos think he is some either insanely brave or insanely dumb <laughs> because he was there in safety and yet he's come back. So he's, he calls me, tells me the situation, it's gotten very dire. And um, and I started taking down his information so that I can help his family someday. Um, and you know, it, it's all you know. Don't don't give up. See see whatever whatever you can do. Um, if we can't get you the plane, see see what your guys can do that are there. Um, and he he actually called his folks in Kabul. They found a C-130 that was about to flee the country with about five or six Afghan ministers, kicked them off the plane and took it down to Kandahar last minute. Huh. And um, and then we were able to, the, the Americans, not me, but were able to get a gunship overhead to make sure that nothing nefarious would happen from the Taliban. They would let them leave. And um, at the end of the day, when the smoke cleared, Iqbal saved about a thousand commandos and two American journalists with only one Person killed.
0: Wow, and I'm glad uh, he is safe. How is Ikhwal and his family doing in the United States?
1: Yep. So um, he's he's doing well. You know, he's uh, always the leader, and uh, called me and said, you know, we're we're standing in a bunch of lines, and uh, people are getting restless. So I'm going to try to get the Americans to just put a tent out in the parking lot, put some pillows down, give us some milk chai. And we'll get Shura going, and maybe if we can organize this thing, then we can facilitate this process as best we can instead of just, you know, us standing in lines. And I was like, man, you never, you never stop. You know, he's just, he's just always trying to help. Um, and um, you know, so he, he's, he's doing well. He's, he's very grateful to be here. Um, he, he still wants to help, and and uh, so we're we're looking at different organizations that he can join. Uh, so that he can be an advocate on this side and hopefully help continue the process with folks that have not made it out of that country
0: yet. Well, I hope to have the honor of meeting him someday. You will. That's great. Josh, uh, last question. As you reflect on your experiences at the Foster School of Business, what sticks out most to you and why?
1: The thing that sticks out to me the most, um, the, the learning that took place uh, because I had a, a, a ton to learn, um, was was really fostered um, by one the faculty, uh, but but the environment that was that was set up so that my peer group could could teach me. And so if if I was lagging in a certain area or something wasn't clicking, mm-hmm. um, certainly there were plenty of opportunities, and I took advantage of those to go and talk with the professor direct. But I found that um, if I wasn't picking something up, one of my peers was, and, and the environment that is very much emphasized at Foster is this one of collaboration that is, um, it just can't be fully expressed on the website. Um, you know, and, and that was critical in, in my personal learning. I'm very grateful for it.
0: Yeah, it's such a important part of the educational process and something we take great pride in and spend a lot of time thinking about here at the Foster School. Josh, I wanna thank you for spending time with me today. Wonderful to see you, be safe. Thank you.